step on up, sit down, twist off that bottle top, or crack open that can. And welcome to Porch Matters. This is Terry Cagle coming to you from my back porch. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. The name of this show is Authentic. On Porch Matters, our saying is this. Big issues or just a friendly conversation. No topic is off limits. We take pride in being able to talk about anything with each other in an open discussion. Open discussion is one of the only ways to learn. Your perspective could be changed. You could change the perspective of others. Friends and family, welcome back to another episode of Porch Matters. I'm glad you're here. It's been a busy couple of weeks for me. Last time I talked to you, I was in a hotel room in Kansas City, Kansas, and just ate some of the most absolute best barbecue I have ever had. Shout out to Joe's Barbecue in Kansas City. To catch everybody up, I went on a road trip with my mom, her best friend, and my great aunt. We left Alabama going through Mississippi. We went up through Memphis, up through Arkansas, into Missouri. We checked out Branson, Missouri. I might actually go back there, by the way. Then, we went on up to Kansas City. Spent the night in Kansas City. Ended up going north through the states of Iowa and Nebraska up to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. That stretch of interstate in South Dakota was the absolute best I have ever been on. We went back east in Sioux Falls into into Minnesota. We spent the night up in Minneapolis. I forgot the Mall of America was up there, because I would really like to have seen it. But went through St. Paul, over into Green Bay, Wisconsin. Got to see Lambeau Field. Seeing a game in Lambeau Field is on my bucket list. I'm not just talking about any game, either. If I go to Lambeau Field, I want it to be snowing. If I'm going to see the frozen tundra, I want to see the frozen tundra in all its glory. We came down from Green Bay and went down through Milwaukee. I'd really like to go back to Milwaukee and check out the Harley-Davidson Museum. We skipped the toll roads and went down straight through Chicago. Chicago traffic is crazy. If any of you live up in Chicago, props to you for dealing with that on a regular basis. We spent the night outside of Chicago and then drove down through Indianapolis the next day. Got to see the outside of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Seeing a race there is on the bucket list as well. Either the Indy 500 or the Breckyard race that NASCAR runs. Either one I'd be happy. Came down through Louisville. Would really like to check out the Bourbon Trail in Kentucky as well as the Corvette Museum. Any bourbon drinkers that listen to this show, let me know how it is if you've ever done it. Came on down and went through one of my favorite cities, Nashville, Tennessee. Any of you that's listening from Nashville, here's your shout out. I love your town. Almost sang Sweet Home Alabama whenever I crossed the state line. I think we drove somewhere in the neighborhood of four to 5,000 miles. So it was a really long trip. That was one of the reasons why I got into truck driving. I wanted to see the country, you know. One thing that I learned real quick on one of my very first loads, was it's kind of hard to see the scenery whenever you're running at night. This past weekend, me and Stacy went up to the Twin Forks Park in Bear Creek, Alabama, and slept in a tent. That was the first time I'd slept in a tent in about 20 years. 
I needed some aspirin cream after I got home, because I ain't as young as I used to be. My back and my legs was killing me. But I'm glad I got to spend time with her and her family. I also found out Stacy was a cornhole hustler. What do I mean by that? Well, me and her cousin and his wife played a game beforehand, and while she was on my team, we were both struggling. But then as soon as she switched to somebody else's team, she couldn't hardly miss. So I had to start calling her a cornhole hustler. Shout out to you, Stacy. I love you. But you know what you've done. <laughs> Shout out to Christy and Charles and Joseph and Brittany. Glad I got to hang out with y'all that weekend. It was great. On this episode, I welcome back to the porch H. Marty Shelper. A little bit of the backstory on this episode. We recorded Wednesday night, but we had some audio issues. Decided to try it again. Miss Marty told me about a friend of hers named Dr. David Allen. He wrote the initiative that was voted on and passed in Mississippi, but was shot down by the Mississippi Supreme Court. I was really happy to have both of them on the porch and really enjoyed our conversation. I hope you do too. Without further ado, let's get started. Marty Shelper, welcome back to the porch, ma'am. And I'm very happy to announce that she brought a friend with her, Dr. David Allen. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for allowing me to invite Dr. Allen to join us tonight. Absolutely. Dr. Allen, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. I appreciate you coming onto the porch on such short notice. No problem. Glad to help. If you would, sir. Miss Marty was sharing with me a little bit of your story. Let's let's just jump right into it. If you you have one heck of a story to tell, if I may say so in my wonderful Southern accent. Yeah, it's a real complex story, but basically, uh, I have a, a fifty acre ranch here with a large lake in Pascagoula, Mississippi. It was a targeted by the, the drug task force. And I actually, I moved away and went to California. And my sister was staying here, taking care of the property. And they, and they raided and they uh, found four grams of marijuana and 16 grams of hash. And I was in California doing cannabis exams as a doctor. They charged me with possession with what they found here. Although I had a driver's license, was living in California for over six months. A lot of bad things happened. I spent 14 months in prison pre-trial. A lot of crazy things happened. Uh, and I was saved by jury nullification. And um, I sued the uh, city and the police for $551 million, believe it or not. And they threw the lawsuit out. I was in California for 10 years. I was a, a cannabis refugee, and I finally returned to my property here at, at the Blue Halls, is what's called, what the property's called, and I've been living here for two years now. So when I was in California, I worked with the Human Solution International, and we did court support for cannabis patients charged with cannabis crimes. And so I've gone to maybe 50 or more court cases for cannabis uh, in California, 
what I learned from that was how the drug war is morphing. And this is like real important information. What's happening is since cannabis is semi-legal in California, that means the police are not as involved in it. And what happens is the drug, the, the uh, code enforcement is kind of taking the place of the police now. And so the code enforcement are starting to wear body armor and they're carrying guns. And since they're not police, they don't have to get a warrant. And so they can fly drones over your property or use Google Earth and charge you with abatement crimes, they call it, of $1,000 a day or more. It goes against your property taxes. What happens is they take you to court, but not in the regular court. They take you to code enforcement building court. And they hire oh a, a lawyer and they call him the code enforcement hearing officer. And then they have two code enforcement officers testify against you. I call them garden police. The most important part is it's, it's civil, not criminal. So you don't get a lawyer and you don't get a jury. And by doing this, they've eliminated the jury, which is the stumbling block in uh, the drug war. So the drug war stands on two legs. The first leg is they got to have at they have to have 12 people say guilty in a jury and 11 people don't work. So if one person says not guilty, it ruins the drug war business plan. And so they're having a hard time finding 12 people to say guilty for a flower crime. That's the first leg. The second leg of the drug war rests on is the CSA, CSA classification control substance act. And so cannabis is schedule one, meaning no current utility, medical utility in the United States and two, uh, not, safe under doctor supervision. And so if you can prove either of those two wrong by medical, doing medical studies in, in the United States, then you could knock down one of the legs of, that the drug war stands on. When I came to, to Mississippi, I was involved in Initiative 65, and I learned about the initiative process. And so since I knew about the code enforcement issue, and I know a lot about cannabis, I decided to write my own initiative, and it's it's uh, been approved. Uh, it's called Initiative 77. It's the real legalization and decriminalization of cannabis and hemp and the legalization of medical and scientific study of cannabis. If it ever passes, which may not ever get it on the vote, uh, it would this would make Mississippi, the first place in the United States that doctors could study cannabis without risking their license and livelihood. I guess you've un you understand what's going on with Initiative 65 now with the Supreme Court. Is that right? I do, but there may be some listeners that are listening to this and listening to your story that may not be okay. familiar with it. Okay, sure. So in Mississippi, they passed uh, Initiative 65. Uh, by a vote of 74% voted for it. And it allows the medical use of cannabis in Mississippi. It's not a great uh, initiative because it doesn't allow home grow. And there's some other issues with it, but it at least allows uh, the people in Mississippi to, to access cannabis. 
So it passed, and it's, it's a constitutional right for people to have the initiative process. It's in the Constitution. And when we wrote this, as soon as people vote for it, it's supposed to go in the Constitution. The minute it gets voted for, okay? But six months later, the Supreme Court of Mississippi uh, shot down 65 and, and all initiative processes. So the Mississippi Supreme Court, in my opinion, doesn't have authority, doesn't have jurisdiction over the vote of the people. And it's a ex post facto ruling, which means it's a ruling that affects stuff that happened before the ruling took effect. Today, um, the governor went on WLOX and said that the initiative process is dead in Mississippi. However, I'm getting cross messages from the Secretary of State uh, attorney, Kyle Kirkpatrick, who says that the initiative process is still good and that I can start collecting signatures. And he sent me this letter, certified letter. And once I pick it up and that the certification sign goes back to them, they start the 12 month clock. But I told them today that I wasn't good. I, I, I got a notice in the mail that they delivered it, but I'm not going to pick it up. That's my ace in the hole. So the, my initiative thing doesn't start until I pick up that letter. And I told him today that unless he solves this legal issue that the court brought up, four versus five congressional districts and the percentages you need to collect signatures from, from all those districts, until that issue is solved, it's a fraudulent business for me to collect signatures when he knows there's no way that he can approve, no matter how many signatures I collect, there's no pathway for him to approve the initiative for a vote. It's a fraudulent business the way it's set up. And so I have a call in to the Secretary of State, and I may end up calling the governor about it, but it's a mess here. And they not only destroyed the right to vote, they also destroyed the constitutional right to petition your government with initiative process. As I understand it, all 50 states have to have a constitution for them to be considered a state. Yes, sir. And that means if they have a constitution that they don't uphold, they don't really have a constitution. Therefore, they're an errant state. And I think the federal government should be involved. Whether that would happen or not is probably slim to none. You threw out a lot of information. There's a lot to digest in that. You no. said a bunch. Of, you said a bunch of stuff right there that I had no idea of. I, whenever I've done a little bit of research on it, as far as what happened in Mississippi, and what I read on it, it seemed like it was more of just a technicality. I didn't know it was as deep as what you just said. All right. Well, here's the stupidity of the technicality. They used to have five districts, five congressional districts, 20 years ago, but they changed to four 20 years ago. The initiative law was written before that, and it says that you have to have 20% of signatures from each of the five congressional districts. The reasoning behind that was there's a lot of big cities in the South, and they didn't want the, 
the population of the South to politically bully people in the rural areas. So they said that you've got to collect 20, a certain percent of signatures from every area of the state. And that's, I guess, kind of fairly reasonable. But the truth is, it's the same geographical area, no matter how many, how we divide it up, and it's the same number of people. And the truth is, here's, here's the crux of the thing. By law, they have to quit counting signatures after they reach 20%. But many more signatures were submitted than the 20%, okay? But they weren't counted because by law, they have to quit counting. So the truth is, no one can prove or disprove that insufficient signatures were gathered. The court can't prove it. They could subpoena those the numbers and actually get to the bottom of it, but they didn't do that. So they made a baseless accusation that, ins that and here's what they're saying, what they're not saying, because <laughs> they, they speak out of both sides of their mouth, is the Secretary of State made a mistake in approving 65 for the vote because there was insufficient signatures and that the secretary of state made a mistake of allowing it to go to the vote. Now, the fact that 74% of people voted for the thing probably means it's impossible that insufficient signatures were collected. So absolutely. That's what I've been thinking. Mm -hmm. So, um, the, the, it's, the most anti-democracy thing that I know of. They had a Senate meeting yesterday uh, that's on YouTube. You can look it up. They had Dr. Thomas Dobbs, uh, who's in charge of the health department regulating cannabis. He said a bunch of outlandish things about how harmful, uh, potentially harmful cannabis was, but he didn't really enumerate so at any rate, it's a complete mess. The governor got on the TV today and said the initiative process is dead. I told the, the initiative's uh, attorney, I said, the governor said it was dead. He says, well, I'm not going to argue with the governor, but I've never see, I haven't seen the video. And so I'm saying it's still uh, an active process. And I said, well, do me a favor, go watch the video and then call me back and tell me if you think it's if the if the initiative process is is intact and I can start gathering signatures and that you're actually going to prove it if I've reached a certain goal and let me know what that goal is. If not, then I'm I'm just not gonna pick up that certified letter until I get legal direction otherwise. So that's my ace in the hole. I haven't picked it up. Hypothetically speaking. Let's say that the governor or, you know, as you said, that the governor said that the initiative is dead. What kind of steps could be taken for the people who want this bill to pass and who would like the initiative to be reinstated? What kind of steps would they have to take to be able to get that done? I'm kind of a pessimist because of my experience with these people. And so... I think here's here's what really happened, I think. First off, they didn't think, they thought that that conservative Mississippi was going to vote against this. And they, they did some legal tricks to try to confuse the voters 
to vote for another alternative cannabis measure that had no teeth, and people voted against that. Initiative 65, the real issue that they hate more than anything, there's two issues they hate, is that all the tax money generated from this is going to go directly to the health department, but not to the state general funds. And they absolutely hate that. And and so one of the big things they're going to do, so that they're going to have a a special session and have an agreement between all the legislature people. And I guarantee you they're going to change this tax status. And the other issue was the mayor of Madison brought the suit to begin with. And she said it was her constitutional right to ban cannabis shops in her city. Now, this is not like banning alcohol, just drying what kind, but this is not, this is not an alcohol drug that you use. This is, this is a medicine like penicillin or, or insulin, or it's better than any of those things. So she's actually saying it's her right to ban medical utility in her in her city and obviously that's completely different from banning alcohol in the city if you don't mind sir uh, miss miss marty was kind enough to come on to the come on to the show a few episodes ago and with she went on and, and on about the medicinal purposes of this plant if you would could you explain some of the medicinal values of this plant (laughs) we don't have enough time but i I will i will try to explain it (laughs) the best way i can so this is a new science that was kind of discovered about 35 years ago and we didn't know what the, the significance of it was but we're learning as we go is this is about what's called tissue receptor science or cell receptor science. And receptors are little chemical antennas. They're made, they're proteins, so they're chains of a protein, and they transverse the cell membrane, and part of it's on the inside of the cell, and part of it's on the outside of the cell. And the part on the outside of the cell is shaped in a certain fashion. The protein has different charges on it, negative and positive, and is shaped in a certain certain spatial configuration. Well, when a chemical floats by that has the exact opposite shape and opposite charge, it fits like a lock and key into this antenna receptor. So people are familiar with insulin binding onto insulin receptors and causing glucose to go in the cell. Yes, sir. But there's all kinds of other receptors. There's estrogen and testosterone and ACTH and a billion other or thousands of others, but there's more cannabinoid receptors than all the other receptors combined. So that's how important they are. And we're learning that it controls metabolism. It controls whether you're burning sugar or fat. And by doing, by burning different substrates, either sugar or fat, you change the outcome of what happens in the cell. And so when you burn sugar, it's inflammatory because it creates a lot of exhaust. 
it creates a lot of oxygen-free radicals. And when you burn fat, it produces less of them at a slower rate. And so fat burning is anti-inflammatory and sugar burning is inflammatory. And we're finding out that this has a major impact on cell division and cell differentiation. So cell division uh, happens mostly if you're burning sugars because cell division requires a lot of energy. So cancers, for the most part, burn sugar. And if you cut off their sugar burning, you can kill the cancers. The discovery of the endocannabinoid signal system is the most significant medical discovery ever in human history and will save more lives than the discovery and application of sterile surgical technique. This discovery is more important than the discovery of germ theory. And may so, I ask a question, Dr. Allen? Of course. Why do you believe that we are having such a difficult time getting the world to wake up to this? Is there a particular lobby or a group or someone that's profiting off of pharmaceutical drugs that's our yeah. biggest nemesis? Because I have an opinion. Yeah. yeah, it's multifactorial. You know, when you're making money on putting people in prison or other ancillary businesses, uh, and people try to tell you, oh, marijuana is good, and you're making money on putting people in jail for marijuana, you tend not to listen to these people and you dismiss the science and you just say, oh, well, you're a pot smoker. You just use it because you have a bad hair day. But they don't know any of the science. I wrote an article about seven years ago, uh, CBD in the treatment of Ebola. And Governor Gary Johnson picked it up and said it on national news. And the pot haters hated it, and the pot lovers loved it. And my article was, was written uh, on a scientific basis of CBD stops cytokine storm, septic shock, and disseminated intravascular coagulation, DIC. That's uh, a mouthful. And, and similarly, COVID kills people by the same mechanism. So what... What the people don't know, and the government's trying to hide this. It's crazy. It's, it's really frustrating watching TV. You don't die from the virus. People don't know that. Uh, are you shocked when I say that, that you don't die from the virus? Do you know why? Why is that, sir? I'm not, because I've been doing the research. So you don't die from the virus. You die from your hyperimmune reaction to the virus. Here's what happens. Your body's on a constant lookout for bacteria and, and viruses, not self. So bacteria your and viruses. Your autoimmune system. Your autoimmune system. Your autoimmune system is looking for foreign invaders. And they can tell by the sequence of the, of the protein, because so, all bacteria and viruses have proteins. Once the, the body recognizes this as not self, then it develops an antibody against this protein, okay? And once that happens... And attacks it. So the first exposure, you, you start to develop antibodies against this protein. The second time you get exposed, what happens is 
you already got these antibodies formed. So the virus goes in the cell, it replicates, it busts the cell open. A million of these little virus particles are, are go into the, the blood system. And while they're in the cell, they're hidden from the immune system. But when they, when they bust open, the immune system can identify them as being foreign protein. And what happens is if the immune system identifies a foreign protein, the white blood cell burst open and it's filled with these enzymes are called cytokines and they do a bunch of different things, but they're signaling molecules and they're enzymes that actually eat the protein, dissolve the protein of the foreign invader. When one cell busts open and releases all these cytokines, it also signals other cells in the area. If they have the antibodies, then they bust open. So one cell busts open and causes a hundred cells to bust open. And that causes a million cells to bust open. And then all of a sudden you got this massive amount of proteolytic enzymes from the white cells that are eating everything. In the case of Ebola, it eats the glue, it dissolves the glue between the cells in your vessels. So the, at first your serum starts leaking. And then when the glue between the cells gets uh, eaten up, then the blood cells start leaking out. And so you die of, of hemorrhage in, with Ebola. But in the case of coronavirus, what happens is when you release these enzymes, it causes the platelets to coagulate. So all the platelets form these micro clots and they plug up all the vessels of your heart and your brain and your kidneys and your liver and everything else. And since you have all these platelet plugs, that means you have a low platelet count in your blood, which means you're subject to bleeding as well. So it's a clotting and bleeding disease. It's called disseminated intravascular coagulation or DIC, and that causes septic shock and death. Cannabis, CBD specifically, lowers this immune response. It regulates your immune response so it's not super hyperactive. Reuters recently wrote an article that CBD may be the treatment and prevention of COVID virus. So these people are trying to restrict the use of hemp with CBD in it, which could be the treatment of a viral pandemic. I say this all the time, profit over lives. And I believe strongly that the pharmaceutical companies and the Food and Drug Administration are the largest legal drug cartel in the world. And I believe that the pharmaceutical companies are why we are having the roadblocks that we're having with cannabis. Absolutely. They're, they're part of the problem, but it's also the police unions and, you know, the uh, prison guards and, and the phone systems in the prison and all the other ancillary stuff. These people don't want to hear that your baby is uh, seizures are cured by CBD. They don't want to hear that. 
And I believe that is a crime against humanity. And I believe that it's been that way since before 1937 when they prohibited cannabis. Right. Apparently, everything that I have read prior to 1937, doctors recommended cannabis for the top 100 conditions of the patients that they saw. But after 1937, they were completely shut down. And it wasn't just the pharmaceutical lobbies that were creating synthetic medications. It was the timber lobbies. You know, right. you can talk about William Randolph Hearst. Right. This is a war on drugs. In any war, you have people that commit war crimes. It's my contention that in the war on cannabis, if they're intentionally keeping people from using cannabis, which will stop strokes, stop diabetes, cure cancers, stop viral pandemics, and a bunch of other stuff, if they're doing that because they're making money, that truly is a war crime. You brought up something interesting right there, not just for myself, but I'm sure there might be a few listeners out here that may or may not have family members or friends or anything that may have been diagnosed as a diabetic. And you just mentioned how cannabis could treat diabetes. Could you go in, could you give us a cliff notes version of, yeah, sure. Of how cannabis can treat that. There's studies that show that experimentally, if they can treat the pancreas cells, the beta cells of the pancreas are the ones that create the insulin. If they give the beta cells of the pancreas an oxidizing agent, virtually 100% of them die. If they pre-treat them with CBD, 96% of them survive. Really? Right. There's a study that shows that if you smoke cannabis, which is not the best way to use it, for 20 years or more, the incidence of diabetes is 66% less than the standard population. No study has been done on if you eat cannabis, what is the incidence of diabetes. I suspect and predict that once that study is done, it's going to, be, it's going to prove that cannabis is the cure, not the treatment, the cure for diabetes. So cannabis is a nutraceutical and metabolic essential. Nutraceutical means it should be in your diet. It, it's a nutritional thing that doesn't cause harm and helps you. And metabolic essential means that if you don't have this in your diet, if your body doesn't make the endocannabinoids it's supposed to make, if you're deficient in the ECS, you're going to be closer to death because cannabis regulates homeostasis. And homeostasis is the ability to stay away from death. So all things physiologically go up and down. If anything that you can measure physiologically goes up and down, respirations, blood pressure, sugar, pH, ACTH, estrogen, testosterone, anything you can measure goes up and down. Yes. Sir. Anything that goes too high kills you. And if it goes too low, it kills you. So life is in the midground between those two extremes. If you interfere with the endocannabinoid signaling system, you interfere with homeostasis, and it brings you closer to death. So this is like a completely new era in, in medicine. They don't teach this to medical doctors. I did a study 
about eight years ago where I called 157 medical schools in the United States. And we asked the directors of the curriculum, do you have a department of ECS with a director? Do you teach the ECS as an organized course like neurology? Or do you have, do you teach the ECS in any ancillary courses like pathophysiology, pharmacology, or neuroanatomy? And the answer is only 13% even mention it. Nobody has organized courses. Nobody has a department of endocannabinoid science. And so that's kind of like the doctors not knowing the nervous system. So you can look that up. It's, it's in uh, Cannabis Digest. It's called Ignorance is Not Bliss. And that's my study on American medical schools not teaching cannabis. When did you first come aware of the endocannabinoid system and how did you become enlightened on the endocannabinoid system? You must be reading my mind, Marty. Well, it depends on, <laughs> on uh, what you're talking about. So I started smoking when I was 17 and the first time I did, it, I thought, wow, there's something about this, but I didn't know all the science that I know now. So I knew about right. it a long time ago, but I wasn't educated about it. And so Dennis Perone said it first, all cannabis use is medical. And I like to add the caveats. All cannabis use is medical, even if you don't understand the complex science of the endocannabinoid signaling system. Just because people are using it and they don't know the science doesn't mean it doesn't help. I've been self-medicating since Uh 1975 when I was 15. You were talking about the endocannabinoid system. Hypothetically speaking, let's say there's somebody that's listening to the show right now that hears what you're saying and is very intrigued by it and heard Miss Shelper talk about it as well, but they're not necessarily interested in either smoking or ingesting any cannabis whatsoever. Is there any way to regulate the endocannabinoid system without ca- without cannabis? I, I don't think so. Okay. Um I don't think so. Uh, So everybody has an endocannabinoid system, and it consists of a bunch of different things. So you have to have these protein receptors, so they have to make the proteins. And if there's any error in making those proteins, they don't work, or they may work less than 100%. And then there's make the signaling molecules that sit that attach to the to the antenna. There's two major ones that they know of. Anandamide, it's called the bliss molecule, and two AG. Yes. Two arachidonal glycerol is the name of it. And those are the two major endogenous or endocannabinoids. And the plant makes phyto or exogenous cannabinoids, and they mimic the ones your body makes. And then there's a transport enzyme that transports these endocannabinoids too. And then there's an enzyme that degrades the anandamide so it doesn't last a long time. So your body makes the anandamide when it needs it. It binds on the receptors and does amazing stuff and then when it's no longer needed this enzyme is called faah 
tha, fatty acid amide hydrolase, is the enzyme that degrades the, the endocannabinoid anandamide. So it doesn't last too long. And so it's a, it's a regulatory thing. So your body makes the chemical. If it lasts too long, then it needs to go away. And so they have an enzyme. And so if you have a defect in any of these things, these complex things, it causes your ECS to work less than optimal. So basically there's in the particular molecules within cannabis, it, it has to be those specific molecules in order for it to work properly. It can't be anything else but that. Yeah. So penicillin doesn't bind onto the cannabinoid receptors because it's it's different shaped molecule. Nothing else besides cannabinoids bind onto this molecule. Now, the scientists in their folly, because they think they're really smart, but they're not. um, (laughs) I know that's right. They can design designer molecules. So they know from x-ray crystallography what the cannabinoid CB1 receptor looks like. And they can make a molecule that exactly fits that shape, the opposite shape and all its charges and stuff. They made this molecule and it was a CB1 receptor blocker. They started marketing it because what they were trying to do, they thought, well, once THC binds to the CB1 receptor, it makes you hungry. And so if we can put a a chemical that binds on the receptor and blocks that action, then it will block you from being hungry and you'll be a diet drug. They made this drug in Europe that uh, they tried on people and it was the Nazi drug. It did everything opposite cannabis did. And so it made you had insomnia, you uh, had anorexia, you uh, were anhedonic, you, you, did, you had no joy at all, and it caused suicide and homicide in people. So it made people like me. This drug was called Romanabont. And they found out in animal tests, when they used Romanabont, which was a CB1 receptor blocker, that it caused colon cancer in rats with high doses. Blocking the ECS causes colon cancer. A bunch of people died and they were killing people and stuff. And so they blocked it in Europe and they tried to bring it over here, but they they blocked it, uh, fortunately. Uh, But that was the first time. Then there was another time the scientists made a enzyme. They made a, a way to kill this enzyme, FA, fatty acid amide hydrolase and their thought was if we get rid of this enzyme that eats up the anandamide then the anandamide will stay along longer and then you will be happier and you'll be hungry so they tried this fatty acid amide hydrolase blocker that cleave this enzyme and people started having strokes and brain bleeds and shit and so the take-home story on all this is this. If you try to mess with Mother Nature, if you try to block the endocannabinoid signaling system, which causes homeostasis, whenever you do that, it causes dishomeostasis and causes you to die. Throws everything out of sync. Right. 
Okay. So you can't mess with mother. Okay. Nature. Let me, let me ask you a question because a lot of people, a lot of people are not aware of the entourage effect. When you get all of those cannabinoids into the system, when you take full extract cannabis oil, how they all work together. It's like not one cannabinoid is better than another cannabinoid. It's when they all come together within the body to create that state, uh, that state of homeostasis. Could you yeah. touch on the entourage effect? Yeah. Cannabis also has cannabinoids and it has uh, terpenes. And terpenes are the right. stuff that gives the cannabis the smell. And there's set there's uh, monoterpenes, and there's sesquiterpenes, and sesquiterpenes are like a hundred terpenes stuck together in a chain. And so the monoterpenes are small molecules, and they evaporate fast. And the sesquiterpenes are heavier molecules, and they ev evaporate a little slower. The combination of cannabinoids and terpenes in the oil will determine how fast it it goes through the blood brain barrier so apparently some of these terpenes allow the the thc to, to enter the blood brain barrier faster and so this different mix in the soup has a different effect than if you gave each individual component by itself the entourage effect is the summation of effects of the soup has more effect than the individual components of it. And that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Terry, I, Terry, I hate to take over in your interview, but something else that plagues the world is dementia, Alzheimer's. How does the entourage effect or the cannabinoids and the terpenes and the soup that you're referring to, how does that affect Alzheimer's patients? Doctor, before you answer that, yeah. before you answer that, you're not it, you're not taking over or anything. You're, it, you're definitely helping out. And this is more of a conversation than an interview anyway. So right. doctor, if you would okay. please continue. I don't know the answer to that. And, and the truth is this. American medical doctors have license. They have license to, to dispense drugs. It's a federal license. Since cannabis is federally illegal, doctors can't write a prescription for, for cannabis. It's federally illegal. The CSA classification means cannabis is not safe under doctor supervision, prevents doctors from studying this. This is the only science that you can name that has laws that prevent people from studying it since 1937. You can study anything, any dangerous thing in the world, pharmaceutical stuff, uh, chemotherapy stuff. Uh, you can study dangerous bacteria and viruses. You can study explosives and all kinds of chemicals and stuff, but you can't study cannabis. And so... By preventing people from studying cannabis, they prevent anybody from showing that cannabis has efficacy. And if they can prevent that, that means it stays in Schedule 1. It's a catch-22. Uh, you can't prove that cannabis helps, and we're not going to let you try. <laughs> well, I will... Well, I, will I have... Credit where credit I, is I, due I as, far as, our, as far as our state goes. They did pass legislation that allowed UAB 
to be able to do research and study and everything on cannabis and yeah. with this new bill that has passed and i'm sure miss shelper will be more than happy to talk about this hopefully the state is moving in the right direction as far as that right miss shelper well back in 2014 the state of alabama actually passed carly's law which actually allowed the research and then in 2016 they passed lenny's law which actually allowed uh, people who suffered from seizures and only seizures to have access to CBD. And then in 2021, when we passed the uh, Darren Wesley Otto Hall Compassion Act, which was Senate Bill 46, we passed therapeutic medicinal cannabis. So that's the answer to that. And that's where we are today. So we've, we've come a long way and Senate Bill 46 is not perfect but it is perfect for some people in the state of Alabama. I want to go back and digress for one moment and talk about the pharmaceutical companies because my concern is this. I have a really hard time with pharmaceutical companies because my sister died of chemotherapy poisoning. Her oncologist told her not to worry about dying of cancer, that she would die of chemotherapy poisoning. So I think what the pharmaceutical companies have done, and they're probably, I'm probably on a hit list, is they have created a crime against humanity. And I'm afraid when we refer to the CSA, and if anybody's listening and they don't know what that is, it's the Controlled Substance Act, which makes cannabis equal to heroin, which it is not but if it's ever removed from the control substance so i believe that cannabis is a nutraceutical and should never be abinoids like epidolics and sativex doctor i well, you kind of broke up a little bit, so I didn't understand all of that. But, you know, I used to attend cancer conferences because I did a lot of cancer surgery. And they'd have all these oncologists there. The oncologist, people don't know this, when you get chemotherapeutic agents, they don't send it from the pharmacy. The oncologist is the one who dispenses it. And they make a profit on it. Right. I attended many of these conferences. And these right. guys would get up and say, well, this particular regime has a 30% response rate, which means if the tumor shrank anything at all, that's a response rate. So 70% had no effect at all, and 30% had maybe a minuscule response rate. I thought back then it was like, that's worse than 50-50. Sounds like it to me. And I, as I told Miss Marty, whenever we were on the first episode, I'm just a simple truck driver. So how do they get away with this? Everybody's making a little money that's involved. That's how they get away with it. Everybody that's involved in it's making a little bit of coin and they're afraid to say much. Miss Marty. I think pharmaceutical companies are a mafia. Right. I think, I don't know what the answer is on all this, but, uh, the truth is cannabis is a nutraceutical and metabolic essential. 
And all these lies can't hide that. And they're going to continue with the same bullshit. It's predictable what they're going to say. They got one play card and they keep just repeating the play card. And it doesn't make sense, but they don't care. It doesn't make sense. It's not supposed to make sense. It's just supposed to make money. Doctor, if you would, there's probably several people here listening to this and listening to you. And I wholeheartedly appreciate you coming onto the porch. But if you would, just to clear up anything, could you possibly share with the, the listeners here some of your credentials that you know kind of proves that you know what you're talking about? <laughs> well, there's no proof that I know what I'm talking about at all. Uh, I'm a retired heart surgeon. I'm double boarded. Um, I, I did five. Or I did eight years of general surgery and three years of cardiac surgery. I did a year of pediatric cardiovascular surgery with Eduardo Arsenegas, a world-renowned pediatric cardiovascular surgeon. So I'm double-boarded in in general surgery and cardiovascular surgery. I've done heart transplants. Uh, I've done any major arterial operation you can think of, carotid endarterectomies, subclavian carotid bypasses, Fempop operations, abdominal aortic aneurysms, arch aneurysms, lung transplants, heart transplants. I did skeletal muscle ventricles where you take uh, the latissimus dorsi muscle and wrap it around the heart and pace it with a, a cardiac pacer and turn it into cardiac muscle. So I've done a lot of that kind of stuff. And and I've read about the endocannabinoid signaling system, and I know that this is a master control system for all physiology. It controls stem cell division. Here's something. If you ask cannabis activists that know anything about the ECS and ask them, tell me where CB1 receptors and tell me where CB2 receptors reside. And everybody raised their hand and say, oh, well, CB1 receptors are in the brain and nervous tissue and CB2 receptors are in the rest of the body and muscles and lung and intestines and everything else. Then if you ask them, why is that? None of them will have an answer. And I think I know what the answer is. Please share. So the brain is different from the rest of the body. The brain burns glucose. The rest of the body burns ketones. So all your muscles, cardiac or striated or or skeletal, burn ketones, which are metabolites of fatty metabolism. But your brain, for the most part, only burns glucose. And if your glucose drops below 60, you lose consciousness. So you have to maintain a high glucose for your, your brain to work. And the reason why we go to sleep is so we can change our metabolism so our brain's not burning as much glucose at night than it is during the day. It gives it a rest. I predict that CB1 receptors, since they're located in nervous tissue, are responsible for glucose metabolism. And therefore, CB2 receptors are responsible for fatty metabolism. And it's true. When you stimulate CB2 receptors, it causes an an anti-inflammatory effect. When bears go into hibernation, 
what they do is they eat a bunch of food in the summer. And then when food gets scarce in the winter, they go hibernate in the, in the cave and they, they lower the respiration and heart rate and the body temperature. And when they do that, they conserve energy and they go into fat burning. So they're not, they're not burning sugar because when their sugar drops, it causes them to go to sleep. Yes, sir. So when they're in hibernation, they're in fat, fat burning. And check this out. This is another epiphany. So the chicken's egg, okay? So you got a chicken and the egg, and it's developing. And inside the egg, you got the egg white, which is the protein, the fuel. And you got the egg yellow, which is, which is the fat. But there's no sugar in the egg. And what's happening is as the eggs develop, the, the chicken beak cells are, are making chicken beaks, and the stem cells are, are dividing into different tissues. You get chicken eye cells and chicken pancreas cells and chicken feet cells and everything else. And so once the, the egg hatches, for the first time in its life, what happens is it goes around and looks around. And if everything is working, what happens is the eyes see the food, the legs take the chicken over to the food, the beak pucks the food, the intestines dissolve the food, and then all of a sudden, for the first time in its life, the glucose goes up. Prior to that, the glucose was real low because there's no glucose in the, in the egg cell. So glucose is a signaling molecule that tells the stem cells, hey, everything is working. All the chicken feed cells are working. The chicken eyeball cells are working. The stem cells don't need to make more chicken everything. And so the regular cells start dividing. And so the increase in glucose is a, a signal that tells the stem cells that they don't need to divide. I believe that a low-sugar diet, low-carbohydrate diet, ketogenic diet, and CB2 stimulation is going to be the cure for many, many diseases in the future. Going back to the bear in the hibernation and talking about the, the CB2, as you was just mentioning, and a, low, and a low glucose diet, I am a fat boy. Is this a good way for me to lose weight? A ketogenic diet is, is a good way to weight any person to lose weight, yeah. Okay. And I've it will, heard, I've, it will I've heard stimulate your stem cells. I've heard different. I've heard different people say yay. I've heard different people say nay. So it's good to hear from a board certified doctor that a ketogenic diet is, would be a good idea for me. It would, uh, and you don't have to do it all the time. Just you know, do it intermittently. So, so whenever you get in trouble, like if you have an injury, what happens? happens is you start you starve yourself and that stimulates your stem cells to to it says when you start starving yourself the body says wait a minute we got to start working and doing stuff and so it's a signal to the stem cells that the body's in trouble you need to start dividing doctor i sure do appreciate you coming on the <laughs> show it's i have really enjoyed this conversation miss marty thank you very much for introducing us and I hope that our listeners have 
enjoyed this as much as I have, and I hope they have took some of your knowledge and will be able to use it in their daily life. As far as cannabis, your cannabis fight in Mississippi, how can my listeners keep up with what you're doing? How can they support you in any way? Well, I have a Facebook group. It's called Initiative 77 Supporters. You can join that, and, and I keep updates on everything that happens with this. It's I, I don't know what we can do, if anything. It looks like the fix is in, and there's not a whole lot we can do. I have a lawsuit that I don't think is probably going to do much because these people just don't listen. When you talk to them, it's kind of like they're brain dead. I feel like the main character on the movie Idiocracy because when you talk to these people, they're all like real stupid and they don't understand shit and they refuse to, they don't want this information that you're trying to give them. They're irritated by it. Miss Marty, how can people follow you and keep up with your fight here in Alabama? Well, the most recent thing that we created was the Alabama Cannabis Coalition. We're on Facebook, so they can find us on Facebook. And we have begun phase two of our fight here in the state of Alabama to legalize cannabis and to allow home growth. And we need boots on the ground. We need passionate and committed members to join us uh, in the fight moving forward. And I want to thank Dr. Allen for being here today. Thank, oh, thank you, you so much. No problem. Well, just remember, if, if there's a quantity limit on how much you can possess, that means you need an army of inspectors to see if you're in compliance or not. And a compliance inspector's job is to find you not in compliance. So all quantities should be legal. Big thanks to H. Marty Shelper and Dr. David Allen for coming on the porch. You can find Marty Shelper on social media by searching the Alabama Cannabis Coalition. You can find Dr. David Allen on Facebook or in the Initiative 77 Supporters Facebook group. Go find both groups and tell them you heard them on Porch Matters. If you're interested in what's going on in Mississippi, Marty suggests the We Are the 74 Facebook group. If you are new to the show and like what you hear, hit that like, subscribe, or follow button and download the episodes in our archives. If this show has been a positive addition to your life, please rate the show and leave a review. won't take you but a minute and it really would help the show. Find us on social media by typing Porch Matters Podcast in the search bar. Word of mouth is still the best way of sharing. Pick your favorite episode and share it with at least one person this week. There are a lot of people out there that have never heard of the podcast before. I sure would appreciate it. And I'll see you next time right here on Porch Matters.